You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, well, one of the ways I believe we can do that is by opening the Bible together regularly. And so I want to invite you to Psalm 119. You'll find the book of Psalms in the very middle of your Bible, roughly. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. There's a a Bible on the the tray or shelf beneath your seat or beneath the seat in front of you. And and so I want you to make use of that. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. If this is one of the first times you've opened the Bible, the the Bible tells us something amazing, that there are treasures available for us if if we open it for the first time or if we've opened it every day of our lives. And so so I want to invite us into doing that. And as we do, we believe that the Holy Spirit begins to open us and begins to expose that which is in us so that we will experience new mercy and apply deeper grace into our own hearts. And so as you make your way to the middle of the Bible, you'll find the 119th of those 150 Psalms and the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in the entirety of the Bible is going to be our our course, our path for the next couple of weeks. And so I want to walk through these 22 acrostic poems that are hymns of praise to God and His Word. As I shared with you last week, the Psalm 119 is a, a psalm, a hymn, a, a prayer, a song, just like the other psalms. But this one is specifically, and it's the longest one, it's specifically a celebration of all that God speaks to us in Christ and in His Word. And so you'll see the, the language of the psalms reflecting upon, ruminating upon all the gifts that God has given us by speaking to us. And as we reflect on that, we celebrate that together, right? Think of this as a, a poem or the lyrics of a song that you, that you might memorize and hum, that we are not simply strangers wandering in this unknown wilderness, but the God of the universe has come across time and space and eternity to speak to you and to me. Right? Who are we? that God should be mindful of us. And so I want to invite you into pondering a mystery that the God of the universe would speak to us and that we would receive it and hear it and benefit from it. And so as we walk through the Psalms here, or the Psalm 119, the four letters of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning in verse 25, join me there and I'll read it with one another. Uh, read it to us as we kind of ponder and meditate on this with one another. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not 
and selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. I pray that this word would come to life with us and they would become the very words of our creator to his people. I warned you last week that this may very well be one of the most boring sermon series that I ever preach. And simultaneously, this might carry the potential to be the most life-changing sermon series I ever preach. Now, as we walk through it, I'll give you a whole host of personal and even anecdotal reasons why I believe that. But essentially, this is a repetitive meditation Upon the blessing that comes from living a life submitted to and guided by God's very words. This is a song of praise, a celebration, if you will, of what it means to daily live in light of God's word. To make every step in light of what God has planned for us. We saw that last week, the introduction to this particular psalm is the same as the introduction to the whole of the psalms in chapter one it begins with a meditation on blessing and he says that real blessing comes from knowing that your steps are according to god's ways that your own life is is a practical example an analogy of god's plan of his will and that's real blessing but i warn you there's very little that's flashy about that. Instead, what I would offer you to consider as the premise of this psalm, and even the premise of your life, that the most true things about you are the things that you do every day. 
the most important things about you are the things that you would never skip in a day. Think about the things that that you might put off, but think about the things you will certainly not overlook. Think about them even this morning. What are the things that you absolutely would never think of overlooking before you came to this place? I I I can't go there now. I haven't, right? Fill in the blank. Think of all the things that you did this morning in preparation to be here. And friend, those kinds of things are the most important facts about you. And as much as because this is kind of the air that we breathe with respect to celebrity and fame and achievement, as much as we would like to believe that our, our true selves is, is visible and in, in powerful and bold acts, acts of expression or achievement, those things couldn't be further from the truth. What is true about you are the most mundane, predictable things about you. Now, this is the beauty that the psalmist reflects upon here, that the most true and beautiful things, because we're made in God's image, about God are, in fact, the most mundane, predictable, and unremarkable things about him. Namely, his mercy is new every day. Every day. The fact that God has given us mercy and grace this morning is, in fact, the most unremarkable thing about the creator of the universe. That's who he is. Think of it. He doesn't know how not to do that. And creatures created in his image who reflect his image in many ways walk and talk the same way. The most important and true things about you are the things that you don't know how not to do. Now I pray that as we reflect on the scripture here that we would also be provided with community people in your life who are able to hold up the mirror and say, have you noticed that you always fill in the blank? And we do that because in those places, the psalmist pounds into our head with repetition, are the places where you and I experience the deepest and most abiding grace. So, He invites us to have a life marked by a predictable and unremarkable dependence upon the very voice of God. He invites us to think on what it would look like for us to live each day according to his word, according to his principle, according to his testimony, according to his statutes, his precepts. To live each day not taking a step until we've heard and secured the presence and voice of God and step out in faith into it. And then for that to become the most boring and predictable thing about you. So we have here the fourth stanza, the fourth letter, you'll notice of each section now it's headed, of the Hebrew alphabet. This might even be for you a a time to learn the Hebrew alphabet. I have... uh, I have advanced degrees uh, in this field because I've learned how to put things to song in order to remember them. So you can actually add the ABCs. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zayin. Those are the letters we're on. I, I told you, don't, don't, be, don't be surprised that you're not very good at remembering some of these things. You teach the ABCs to your kids this way. Here we go. So we are in the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh stanza. 
Remember, these are eight-verse stanzas that are written as an acrostic. The letters are significant because every single word begins in each of those verses with the letter of that stanza. Now, that's, in, that's incredibly important because some of, these, some of these will seem disjointed, like the Proverbs. Some of these stanzas won't seem like a, a, a whole put together, but that's, that's because... He wants us to learn the ABCs of walking according to God's word. And if you had to write eight verses that began with, I don't know, the letter Q or X, those eight verses might be a bit confusing for you as well. They wouldn't be probably, they probably wouldn't fit together very well. So sometimes that's what we'll find here. There's some letters in the alphabet here, or, or in this case, the Hebrew alphabet, that, that don't have very many words that begin with them. So beginning with Dalit, these first, or these, the, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh stanza, we're to reflect on this, and, and here's what I think we find is as we, as we reflect on what life according to God's word would look like, and we think about what it means to, to live according to God's word, he's inviting us to meditate upon the depth of that concept. So last week I started with this, that, that the idea of God's word, God's speaking, is, is a theme throughout the entirety of the scripture. The very first thing that happens in the Bible is that in the beginning, God spoke. In the beginning, God brought life to death, brought something to nothingness out of nothing by doing what? Speaking. Even to the point where the last words in the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, are basically anyone who tries to add to the words that God speaks is, is, is stepping into treacherous territory. And so God speaks and reveals himself to his people through creation. The, the Bible tells us that even the, the stars and the, the celestial bodies declare something about the goodness and order and beauty and majesty of their creator. But then God speaks to his people directly. God reveals himself to his people. Like you and I introduce ourselves, right? God reveals himself. God reveals himself to his people and he reveals himself to a chosen people as a, a God who keeps his promise to redeem them, to not condemn them and, and to dispense with them and to cast them off and not to leave them in wandering, but to be their God and they'll be his people. And he speaks to them, even some of them audibly face to face, like Abraham and like we see in Moses. But then finally, the gospel of John invites us to consider this mystery that the most definitive and powerful word that God has ever spoken into creation is in Christ. In the beginning, God was speaking. John tells us, but that speech was not just about light and dark and day and night. It was about redemption, reconciliation, and life where there once was death. All in Christ. So for us, the word that God speaks to us in Christ, which I believe this psalm has the ability to to stir in us a deeper appreciation and affection for than any other place in the Bible. It gives us life, it gives us meaning, and it gives us acceptance. Now that multifaceted concept of the Word is quite literally built into this chapter. I mentioned this last week, but you'll see eight different forms of the same concept as a way of meditating, and in this case, like repetition, to make sure that you don't miss it. The word law, word as, in this case, a, a general speaking, but you'll see the other, the, the less common use of word is a, a more specific speaking by God is found multiple times. At judgments, testimonies, commandments, statutes, and precepts. Now, we'll get to this over the weeks to come, but we're often afraid to, of thinking of laws as a good thing, right? You and I were just 
we're, we're just enough of individualists and we're just enough of Westerners and we're just enough like, you know, fans of Patrick Henry to say that, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Don't tell me what to do. But, but you and I know absolute freedom actually leads to destruction. Complete and total freedom actually leads to chaos and we kill each other. And as these people would have been meditating upon, meditating upon it, wanderers in the wilderness need to know where to go. And the story of the God of the Bible is that the wandering people were sent a messenger that is Moses to give them what to do. Here is how you are to live. Here's how you are to live in a way that brings about vitality and flourishing. And that law was a profound answer to prayer of the people wandering and wondering, what do we do? Where do we go? So I'll begin to kind of unpack as we walk through this reasons why I think this can be one of the most formative times for our church and why this this particular chapter can be a practical guide. I believe it was written that way. And so I gave you a few things. Remember, uh, last week I said that every single day I want you to begin with one stanza. I want you to read some part of the day, read that those eight verses, and let that set your prayer for what I want you to do. Secondly, is I want you to memorize something out of the section. So hopefully this last week you memorized something out of the first three letters, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of course you did, right? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, right? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? So this, those are three verses I committed to memory because I still think I'm a young man. That seemed appropriate, and so that, se- that seemed to call out to me. Yes, indeed. How can a young man? That's me. And so I don't know what that was for you, but I want to invite you to what practical tips that psalmist gives, which is to meditate, to ruminate, which is the form of memorization. The things you remember are important. (laughs) But then lastly, I want you to reflect upon how Christ is the fullest expression of all of these things. He is the perfect law keeper. He is the perfect expression of God's rightness and righteousness. And so every one of these reflections, every one of these verses allows us a different view into the beauty of Christ. Every one of these verses gives us a different angle on this multifaceted diamond that is God's grace to us expressed in Christ. So, verse 25 begins with the psalmist in need of help. He seems to be in trouble. He seems to be lamenting a sort of, you hear that word, clinging, a bondage to earthly things in which he founds himself to be captive. Here's what I want you to reflect upon, at least somewhat from this stanza, that we are dependent upon God's actions in sorrow. We will end in despair. Our whole existence will end in sorrow and destruction if God does not act, if God does not intervene. He says here that his soul is clinging to the dust. The other word it uses, and it's melting Stop for one, one moment here. This, is, this isn't necessarily something we're to analyze because it's, an, it's a work of art, right? I mean, you can break apart 
Shakespeare and his sonnets, you can break apart a poem or a song, but in some sense, it just needs to be sung. It just needs to be repeated. It just needs to sit on you. And so, so I just want to ask without even thinking any more, have you felt that way? Have you felt like your soul is in the dust? Have you ever felt like your soul is melting like wax? Because in this stanza, we see the influence of God's word on a heart that's melting. We see the power of God's word for those of us when our tendencies are filled with mourning because of the lifeless surroundings in which we find ourselves. And so the word of God does a few things. It, in the first few verses, it arouses prayer. Beginning in verse 30, it confirms our resolve. And, and then in verse 32, it inspires a renewed sense of resolve. And so the voice of God, the very word of God, is the surest source of help in all troubles, whether in our body, in our mind, or as he says here, in our soul. And you're meant to see that those concentric circles, right? When I say God's word is the surest source of help, you're meant to think, I turn to God and look to him. And what do I receive? I receive his revealed word in scripture, but I also reveal, I also receive his word of grace to me in Christ, his word made flesh. My soul clings to the dust. He said, when I told of your ways, you answered me. Maybe this is one of the best ways I could summarize that. Like being honest before the Lord is always the most wise course of action. I mean, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's already fully aware of your circumstances and your situation. But here's the thing about confession. When we confess, did you catch that? It brings about life. When we admit what's true, we experience life-giving grace. And here's the thing about confession. We confess and experience life not because God needs to learn what's going on, but because we do. Confession has a powerful way of, of like, as it comes out of our mouth, shocking us. Can't, right? I mean, and that's, I share this often with you. In, in a community of grace, one of the things you'll begin to realize is that the people who love you already know that stuff about you anyway. And the only one shocked by that confession is, is you. Because we love you. We've been, we've been looking for opportunities to demonstrate the whole time. We demonstrate grace to you the whole time. We've been watching the whole time, right? Right? And you're kind of like, you know what? I'm just really prone to complain. And, I had a, and that comes out of your mouth. And you're like, oh, what an awful, awful thing for me to say. And everyone around you is going like, Yes. Yes. Like, no, and this, this is what you'll find. Whenever you confess what's true to God, God is not shocked. In fact, he has grace waiting. He was, he was waiting for you to figure it out. And the same thing, I believe, in a community of grace. When you confess what's true about you, people who love you are like, that's right. And this is what will blow your mind. They've known that awful thing about you ever since they met you. And if they're gracious people changed by Christ, here's the fun part. They were friends with you anyway. And so what we find here is that when the psalmist says, I I confessed and you answered me, now teach me. And he finds life in it. 
And so in this sense, if you want to gain spiritual growth, it says we run to the word of the Lord and we ask the Lord for strength. Just look at the format of this particular psalm. The first few verses are all imperatives. Did you catch that? It's, he's giving indirect imperatives to God. That's a bold thing to say, right? Give me life, right? Teach me your statutes. Make me understand. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me. And then, did you see the last three verses? He turns to, if you'll do those things, surely this is what will happen. Hear the good news. God, in his mercy, grants these things to us so that we are able to, as verse 30, 31, and 32 tell us, we live in faithfulness, not be put to shame, and run with an enlarged heart. So friend, ask the Lord to revive you. Ask the Lord to sustain you. Ask the Lord to keep you. Key words here, he uses the word soul and cling. Right at the beginning... His soul clings to what? Did you catch it? Dust. As if to say and confess his proneness to, and you know this, to to be fixated with earthly things that just don't last. They just, they're poof. But as God responds to his confession, what does his soul cling to in verse 31? His testimony. God has borne witness to his mercy towards him, and and he clings to it. And therefore, he can say, because of that, I can ask you to be free, I can ask you, Lord, to free me from shame. The first five verses are, are saying something to God, and the last few verses are our response when God has heard and answered our calls. One quick observation. Did you notice, you'll see this along the way, little bitty bits of wisdom, I think, about God's word, but about what it means to live a life of faith according to God's will for our lives. Verse 29, he says, put false ways far from me. He's crying out in sorrow. And here's just an an observation of wisdom I think the psalmist gives us, is that sorrow makes you most susceptible to falsehood. In difficulty, that's when we're most likely to tell and believe lies about ourselves, about the world. I mean, isn't that the story of difficulty in the last year that's made conspiracy theories incredibly acceptable and believable for most people? We're, we, want it, we want answers, don't we? We, we, want, we want someone to explain the chaos, and we'll take anything, right? Right? There's a, there's a, there's a you know, like there's a, a coup of people, Illuminati, right? And they're sitting in a room, and they're making everything happen. You're like, okay, that's better than, that's, that, in, 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 that, in that moment of sorrow when our soul is melting and in dust, we're like, that's, at least that's something. Because for us, it's better than, I don't know. But notice what he says here. He says those kinds of false ways aren't to be considered. They're not to be welcomed, to be flirted with. Did you catch that? Put them far from me. And then graciously, you teach me what's true. So Christian, say I don't know before you dabble with falsehood. 
Just say, I don't know. Before you pass on and invite others into your little wormhole of falsehood, just say, I don't really know. I'm a finite, limited creature. Christian, you're not even allowed to flirt with falsehood. Do not do anything that would compromise your testimony. Remember, we are the people who pass on the eyewitness account of the resurrection of Christ. Don't do anything. Don't flirt with falsehood in any way that would discredit our testimony to an encounter to the risen Christ. You can't afford it. The gospel is too valuable. So friend, put falsehood far from you and recognize that when we're in despair and sorrow, that's when we're most susceptible to believing lies about ourselves, right? Isn't that when you started believing the, the lies about yourself? Because you, want, you wanted something, right? You wanted comfort. I'm a good person, right? Because in sorrow, you really hope that's true. But friend, that's not the hope for the Christian, The hope for the Christian is that in spite of all of that, a true and definitive word has been spoken to us in Christ. And put off anything, anything that would rob you of joy in that. And put off anything that would hinder our testimony of that truth to the world. Put them off. Far from me, Lord. Verse 33, the second stanza we're looking at today, he didn't cries out, if, if the first stanza he's, crying out for comfort and sorrow, then, I mean, I almost ran off without this. I I apologize. Verse 32, the last little bit of that stanza, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I I love the wisdom that's also in this. We are pursued, or excuse me, we pursue what our heart is enlarged to love. Uh, My goal is to kind of like make my, my great African father, Saint Augustine, great again, right? Our heart reveals so much about us. We, we think that we're, we often think we're like rational thinking beings, when in reality, the most true thing about us is that we're desiring beings. The first thing you did when you got up this morning wasn't think and rationalize the day, it was desire. You were hungry, right? Or you were thirsty, or you were, right? You, you wanted, you longed for something. And notice that, that for the psalmist, the, the true joy was that God would come and shape the psalmist's heart rightly so that he would run after the right things. Friend, that's the prayer of the Christian, is it not? God, please change my heart. And I want you to know this is a promise fulfilled for us in Christ. Ezekiel tells it to God's people, and I, this is, he's speaking God's promise to these people in trouble. Look, something's going to happen. One day, I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. He'll give you a beating, softened heart that looks like his. And for those of us in Christ, that's our story, is it not? We were dead and lifeless, and yet in Christ, now we have a, a, a beating heart. We've started to love the things that God loves. I I point this out because this is a fulfilled promise, but this is also a practical wisdom. The things that you want to stop doing in in your life aren't because you haven't figured them out. They're not because you haven't like reasoned them through. It's not like you miscalculated them. It's because your heart longs for them. Just practically speaking, this is this is as I as I've shared for you, I want this season of our church to be a time of disciplined Bible reading, submitting to God's word. And there's some practical wisdom. First, he confessed what's true. 
And then he knew once God changed his heart, then he would start living right. This is, I hear this a lot. Maybe I've shared with this you, um, I've shared this uh, with you one-on-one. Often I hear people say like, I want to read my Bible, but. And I want you to invite your, like, like, feel the invitation to consider that's completely untrue. You don't want to read the Bible. And do you know who won't be surprised when you confess that? And so when you confess that is true and realize that the problem in your life isn't your habits or rituals, it's your heart. Then an amazing kind of grace will begin to like infiltrate even your behavior. Confess you love the wrong things. Start, and, and this, is, this is what I, 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 I do this regularly. Most of my prayer and, and Bible reading begins with that. God, I don't really want to read this right now. I'd, I'd rather do something else. I'd rather do, I'd, man, I'd rather do anything else. God, if you don't change my heart, if you don't make me want the right things, then I'm going to jump right back in my old rituals and I'm going to want whatever I want and go wherever I want. But notice his promise fulfilled in Christ, as Ezekiel tells us, is that he will change which actually, which it is actually broken in us. And it's not your behavior. It's your heart. But thanks be to God, he'll change it. And he goes from clinging to the dust, right? You get the picture of his soul like, like curled up in a ball in the dust. And then what's he doing by the end as he receives like this enlarged heart from God? He's running. Because God changed his heart. Now, verse 33, I apologize. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. In the first stanza, he cried out for comfort and sorrow, change of heart. But in the next stanza, he, he, he wants instead now to, also he wants to be taught. He wants to be guided. He wants to be redirected. Incline my heart. Did you hear it again? To your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And, and he, in, in 36 and 37, one of the most powerful, I think, words in this, in this particular passage comes into view. He's saying the problem is that instead of wanting your testimonies, what does he say? I want selfish things. I want things that benefit me. So now, verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and then give me life in your ways. Connect the dots there. Worthless things lead to death. And he recognizes, God, if you don't direct my gaze to things that are not worthless, I'm lost, I'm dead. Now this shouldn't take you much, much work to reminisce upon, but like, have you, ever, have you ever done or invested in something that ended up being fairly worthless? Right? It's usually on Amazon. That's usually where that stuff comes from. I don't know, maybe that's... This is gonna, this is gonna solve everything. No! You're broken, Right? Have you ever, have you ever invested in something that you found to be kind of worthless? Have you ever poured your heart into something? I, I often help people see this, especially if you're in a position of leadership. Is we use the phrase burnout. Burnout is just the word we use that's like code for I had expectations and hopes that weren't met. I poured my life into something and it didn't turn out like I wanted it, so therefore I don't want to do it again. That, that's exhaustion. That's the burnout, right? Have you ever felt that? So can you, can you begin to like 
understand what the psalmist is praying here? Can, can you begin to let that resonate in you and, and even consider praying that yourself like, God, protect me from that. I'm so prone to throw myself at things that end up being worthless. They end, they end up not satisfying. And in fact, he sees the, the wages of this are life and death. As if to say, if you don't turn my eyes to look at things of great value and meaning, I won't have life. So now then, behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Here's that word again. Give me life. So Christian, in light of what he says here, what do you look at? What captures your attention? I shared this with you last week. Is that like, you know, this, our, our phones have made it to where like, you, you don't even know what captures your attention because it's so short, everything is, ca- like, the answer is everything, right? Squirrel, right? And I share this with you regularly. I know this, this is a discipline for us that, I, um, for better or worse, my goal on a Sunday morning, I don't want to abuse your attention span, but my goal on a Sunday morning is to stretch your attention span for the Bible. Because I'm like you. I know how easily distracted I am. So if you drift off while we're in here, that's fine. You'll come back. I promise. It, you'll... And, yet, and yet we're meant to reflect upon all the things that distract us. What catches your attention? I say that because this is a profound time to live there are, there are geniuses in the world right now, right, running algorithms for social media and advertising and your interaction with, with technology that are making billions of dollars over your attention. They're selling your attention. That's it. Like, I'll throw this because I know they'll look at it, right? And this is awful because this is, I, I, I had to throw them all under the bus, but this is cable news, right? Who really cares what's news or important? What sells? What gets people's attention? What keeps it coming back? And you know what this is, right? Outrage. Right? Or just, I would just say like, I don't know, ridiculous things. Have you you not noticed this? Like at the end of a news, at the end of a news cycle or something like there's like, oh, and in other news, here look at this ridiculous video that went viral. It's like that, what does that have to, like, does that make me a better voter that I saw that? Does that make like a, does that make me a more informed citizen like well what's like did i need to see like but it sells doesn't it oh it's it's it gets our attention so quickly and we are so eagerly distracted by outrage by by things that are absurd and and friend i just want you to know that in those moments as you let your guard down it's possible that the enemy is at work to bring death Because after all, think about it. I speak to you Christians. If you know the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ, then the best thing that the enemy can do for you and for me, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to get us to like recant. He doesn't have to get us to like, to to turn on that and, and, and profess unbelief in Christ. He just has to distract us from it. All he has to do is just keep, oh, look over here, look over here. And so this is a call to to deep living, isn't it? For Christians to be kind of like single-minded, focused, not easily distracted, set on the path. Because we know that if we turn and look at worthless things, which is what we love to do, then it's going to lead to death. 
But the most meaningful things are the things that you know the Lord has shown you. He's opened your eyes to, and you couldn't close your eyes to them now if you wanted to. Have you beheld the beauty of Jesus? I mean, after all, if, if it's lifeless to look at worthless things for the Christian, how worthy is it to look upon Jesus, to behold him, to gaze at him? Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then, now this is a, a lot of conditions in this, then and then four, four, you catch all those from verse 41 to 48, then I will do this. And so it starts with love. God, your steadfast love is going to have to come to me according to your promise. Now I want to draw attention to this. 19 times I've counted, it may be more, in, in Psalm 119, this is my favorite phrase. And I want to invite you to kind of ruminate upon it. It's that phrase, according to. Now, the first time we saw it wasn't according to God, but according to us, right? It was like, uh, I, I, I recited it to you. Like, how does a young man keeping, he keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. But in that sense, he was like, he was kind of talking about what he was going to do. He was going to guard it according to God's word. However, almost every other time we'll see the phrase according to in the rest of Psalm 119, I want you to stop for a minute and ponder God's grace in it. So look what he says. Let salvation come according to your promise, according to you. And so we're, we're meant to stop for a moment and think, like in verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. What are we, in this sense, gaining or thriving on according to? Right? According to what are you currently getting strength? According to what do you find hope or salvation in this case? And stop and just weigh the two. What's it like to have life according to your job? Right? Like, what's it like to have joy according to the relationships that you have around you? What's it like to have pleasure and hope according to what you've experienced even today? Shaky, right? But the psalmist invites us to think, What's it like to have life according to the Lord? What if you and I had joy, not according to our circumstances, but according to the Lord? What if we had hope, not based on what the world says about you, but according to what God says about you? And so every time this phrase shows up, I want you to pause and reflect on God's grace in it. That you and I have a new disposition. We no longer live or act according to what the world says which is a hopeless, worthless endeavor. But you and I act and live according to what God has said. According to, I love this, His promise. The promise-keeping God of the Bible, right? And I share this just as a means of repetition. The first story in the Bible is how people fail. And that's where, if I were the God of the Bible, the story ends. That's it. Start over. Wipe them off the face of the planet. And, and what we find is the rest of the Bible is a story of they keep failing, and God keeps redeeming them. He never gives up on them. The fact that you and I are here right now is evidence that God is a promise-keeping God. He's not slow to anger. And he's being patient with you and I. Now we have life according to his ability to keep promises, not according to the world's. And so we are to cry out to God for help in our utter dependence. If you catch, I find delight in it. I, I lift my hands toward your commandments, which I love. 
I will meditate on your statutes. Now, this is a, a tricky thing, but I, I, I try to be careful because there, there can be some unhelpful traditions. Some of you have been maybe brought up in, but uh, uh, talking about raising your hands in a worship gathering can, like, some of you start to have, like, PTSD, right? So you're like, ah, he's raising his hands. He's still doing it. <laughs> the Bible commands it. And this is why Christians, you don't have to, again, this isn't a rule, but I invite you to consider that the Bible says we lift our hands to the Lord. In this case, we lift our hands toward even the word of the Lord. And here's all I want you to think, right? Sometimes I'll, in, in singing, I'll, I'll lift my hands. I see that hand. And so, like, uh, this is what I'll tell you. This is the universal sign of surrender. It doesn't matter what part of the world you go to. This means the same thing. Any culture, you walk out, and if you do this, it's, the, it's, like, it's like the dog, right? When the dog throws itself on its back and shows it your belly, I mean, it kind of wants you to scratch its belly, but mainly it's saying, I'm not a threat, right? I'm submissive. And I just want you to see the posture the psalmist wants us to take is the universal sign of surrender. God, I give up. I depend upon you. And I will lift my hands. Hear that? I will give myself over to you. I surrender. God, I'm going to stop fighting. I'm going to stop rebelling against you. You speak what's true. And then I'll meditate on your statutes. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Hear that same language. God changes us, gives us a new hope, and then we have a new life. And this will now be my comfort in my affliction. Looking to comfort in affliction outside of the promises of God leads to death. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that what? Your promise is what gives me life. In the same way that looking at worthless things leads to death, he's saying here also, if we look for comfort in our affliction in lesser things than what God has promised for us in Christ, then the end result is death. He has promised to give us life and he has granted that to us in Jesus Christ. Here's the last thing I think you see in this stanza. You saw this uh, in the first, we saw this last week, you saw it a couple stanzas ago, but he specifically speaks about how what he's doing and how he's living according to God's word seems to invite the criticism and even derision of the people around him. Look at that. The insolent deride me, but I won't turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. So his comfort... And we saw this in the, in the, even in verse 46. He's going to be able to speak the testimonies before kings, and he will not be put to shame, is in God's delivering capability. And this is a biblical theme, that when our hope is in God's ability to save and deliver, we are free from the fear of other people. We are free to not care what other people think. Since we've been given all the approval we need in Christ, we're now free from needing the approval of others. This might be one of the most powerful things that many of you hear. Because it's possible that even the reason you are here this morning has nothing to do with hearing the voice of God and experiencing the presence of God. It's how it makes you look to other people. This is what I've learned about Bible Belt and Midwest churchianity. 
it's possible to call yourself a Christian when all you're doing is putting on a mask, dressing up for show, and teaching your kids to do the same thing. Friends, I was born and raised in it. And that, the psalmist says, is the prison of the fear of man. It's possible. You could, you, you could put on a religious face. And literally, I, quite literally, this is just look, dress up to gather with the church. Could there be another anti-gospel thing? We are clothed in Christ's righteousness alone. And that frees us from worrying about what other people think. So friend, if that's you, if you've like been in this prison of religiosity, get out! Who cares what anyone, who cares what I think of you? Who cares what anyone thinks of you? The God of the universe will deliver you from, did you catch that? The scorn and the shame of kings. The God of the universe will shower so much approval and acceptance on you that you will be freed from shame. And though anyone might deride you, you will know they don't speak for the Father. So friend, you don't have to put on a show. You can confess what's true. Did you hear that? And, and the Lord will answer. And you will, feel, you will feel comfort and acceptance in the middle of your affliction because he will keep his promise to not forsake you and not turn his back on you. I love the closing reflection in these four stanzas. Hot indignation seizes me. It's kind of bang, bang, bang because of the wicked who forsake your law. Ask yourself this question. Are you angry at people because they break your laws or because they break God's law? And I just know personally, whenever someone breaks my laws, right, my statutes, I'm full of anger, right? But when I'm thinking about how they've rebelled against God's law, I'm full of pity and compassion. When I see that they've sinned before God, they don't need to answer to me. <laughs> they need the mercy of God. They don't need my, forget, they don't need my mercy. I love this verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Quite literally, your word is the, or is the song that I sing. They're the songs, plural, that I sing on my journey. I don't know about you, but this, this is the lasting kind of picture I want you to take. Whenever we go on a road trip, we always make a playlist. Now, back in the day, we would we record it onto a cassette tape, right? Little TDK 90, and you could dub right off the radio. Because if you're going to be in a road trip, you, gotta want, you want to have access to all those songs. Then we started burning CDs. But I want to invite you to such a practice. We never go on a road trip without kind of having a playlist. A playlist of songs to sing on the road. Right? If you're on I-40, I recommend the Cars soundtrack. A lot of great. Life is a highway. It's, good. it's a good playlist for your sojourning. Get it? Christian, the testimony of God to us in Christ is the playlist on our journey. Some of you know this. I'm afraid to confess it. When I first was allowed to like uh, kind of buy my own CDs. I bought a CD called Ace of Bass. And there was a song on that CD called The Sign. And I recorded onto a cassette tape, yes, from a CD, I know, 90 minutes of the same song over and over and over again. 
Previously, I had a radio version that didn't have the first 10 seconds because I didn't get to the record button fast enough. Oh, well. <laughs> and I owned two tapes that were 90 minutes of the same song. That was before you could like put a CD player on repeat. And it was a song on repeat. Because that song was the jam. I mean, I mean, it's, we'll sing it later. I invite you into such an absurd thing so that you'll consider the same possibility. That for you and I on this journey, there's a song playing on repeat of God's promises kept in Christ, of God's deliverance offered in Christ, of God's redeeming work displayed in Christ, of his forgiveness, of his mercy, and of his grace showered upon us in Christ. And friend, you're going to need that song on repeat. You are going to need that thing buzzing in the back of your head because you'll be tempted to look at lesser worthless things. You'll be tempted to find your hope outside of God's promise. But friend, come into the, the crazy repetitive act of living with the song of God's mercy over us in Christ on repeat and find the joy that comes even when we're wandering in this lonely, dusty, awful life by getting a taste, as we see here in the Psalms, of the life that is to come, marked by the presence and power and the voice of God himself. Let's pray together for just that. God, I thank you so much that you have not left us out. You have not forsaken us, but you have come to be with us and for us in Christ, and you have spoken a word to us when we needed to hear from you the most. At just the right time, Christ died for sinners. I pray that that would be true even now. Maybe if there's some in this room, they've, they've never looked to you for hope in Christ. I, I pray that even now that they might, in their sojourning, in, the, in the, the weariness of their own soul, might you give them the faith to to have an enlarged heart and look to you for hope. Might you grant them all the grace and mercy that you have purchased for them through the blood of your son, Jesus. Might you shower them with the joy that comes from knowing the victorious resurrection of Jesus over death, hell, and the grave. For the rest of us, God, we confess that we are prone to look and love, look at and love lesser things, worthless things. And I pray that now that you would, as only you can, Put the song of your redeeming grace in our hearts on repeat. May it resonate with us deeply. May the songs that we meditate upon here in this psalm be the songs that we sing and shout with the angels forever and ever. We thank you that this promise is true for us in Christ. Amen.